have a space problem. We get it. Um, we're sorry. So we're working on it. Um, but uh, if you're here for the first time, just come back. So don't, we'll, we'll make a seat for you. All right. Don't be like, oh, man. So we know it. We're on it. So, uh, in fact, we're very actively trying to find some new space options and, and do some different stuff. So very cool time in the life of our church, this little movement that uh, we have going on and we're a part of. And this kind of time in our life is a really interesting time. And I was, I've mentioned a few weeks ago that I thought that the Lord, and I was leaning towards teaching the book of Esther, and I was kind of excited about that. And Thursday, through a bunch of other things, I was just spending time with the Lord. It just wasn't right. And so we're going to be diving into the book of Acts, which is really kind of unique in our, in our sort of time and place. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. Um, but the book of Acts is... Well, it's a really incredible book because it's more than a letter or a book. It's actually a call. It's the call for followers of Christ. It's the call for the church. It's your call. It's my call. It's, it's who we are called to be if we say that we believe in and put our trust and hope into Jesus Christ. And it becomes a call, a movement for all of us. And so it's, it's unlike many books that we've looked at and studied because it's the picture of who we are called to be, both individually and together. Now, before we dive into it, I want to tell you, just to give you a little word about kind of my kind of preaching, and I say this often, but I'm going to say it again, and I love preaching through text. Like, I love preaching through books of the Bible, like line by line, word by word, verse by verse, and I love it because I think that Scripture has to be understood in context, and so oftentimes in kind of our, our movement of today's entertaining style, topical style preaching, right? that we've got short moments of time that we need to kind of get people's attention and retain them, that sometimes we use Scripture as supplemental kind of things for our topical teaching. So I'll do a four-week series on marriage or on love or on friendship, and, and Scripture quickly becomes supportive for our kind of content. And not that that's anything inherently super wrong with that, and, and I'll certainly preach topical at times, but I love this kind of thing because my goal as a pastor, as a preacher, as a whatever, is to put you into God's Word, right? My goal is not to entertain you. My goal is not to have you not fall asleep, to tell a couple of funny stories so that you want to come back. My goal is not to compete with everybody else. My goal is simply to introduce us as a church into, into God's Word. Because when we have an encounter with God's Word, we have a radical encounter with Him. So I want our preaching and our teaching to always be Bible-centered or bibliocentric is the kind of fancy word to use there, that, that every time that we gather, we would work through text together. And that there would never be a time when you came here to church and, and you were walking out the door and you said to yourself, well, you know, I guess I didn't need to bring my Bible today. Like, if that begins to happen, like, leave. Go somewhere else. Be like, dude, deuce is gone. Because I want to go to a church that teaches God's Word. So that's my kind of little statement. That's why I love doing this. Now, that being said, right, Acts is unlike any other book I've ever preached through. And I've preached through segments of it and things like that. But from start to finish, mainly because it's massive. It's 28 chapters. Now, for those of you that are coming for the first time, you're like, that's no big deal. But for those of you that have been coming for a while, will realize that it took me 22 weeks to get through five chapters of Philippians, right? And you're doing the math in your head. You're like, okay, five and 22. If there's 28 and five, carry the one square root numerator denominators. That's seven years or whatever. <laughs> Maybe. Let's not worry so much about when we're going to end. We're going to take this in bigger movements, we're going to pause along the way, but we're going to begin an epic journey today, working through the book of Acts, examining not only my call and your call as Christ followers, but all our call together as the church. I'll let you in on a little secret. We've actually been on this journey already. If those of you that have been coming through the summer, we open up the book of Luke and begin to, begin to move through its highlights. 
Well, Luke is actually the companion volume or the first volume to Acts. Most scholarship believes that Luke-Acts was actually one big book divided into two volumes. That Luke wrote them at the same time. And that later on they were sort of parceled out. But, but they were just one big movement. And we're kind of aware of that because Luke leaves off right where Acts picks up. So we've kind of been on this movement for the summer. So we're kind of already like 12 weeks in. So we're, we're in a good place. This really isn't day one. It's like day 13 or week 13. So we've got a ways to go. But I'm really excited about it because um, this book has meant a lot to us as a church. And I'll kind of explain that as we get into it. So the book of Acts. Let me give you a quick word about Luke. Luke um, is, well, he's not one of the original disciples. Most people are kind of uh, surprised by that. Luke was actually a Greek. He wasn't a Jew. He was a convert. And from a lot of the language that we see used both in his gospel, but really in his book, the book of Acts, the we language he uses, it seems that he was a traveling partner or companion or, or a disciple of Paul. And Luke, we know from the book of Colossians, or at least Paul referenced that, that he was a doctor, so he's got that going for him. But he's not one of those guys that we would typically say, one of those 12 Jewish called out disciples. Luke was a different guy, and he has a different picture of the life of Christ because his time was not spent in that sort of close-knit circle. Instead, he was a, a person that either had met Jesus by chance or Paul had sort of shared the truth with him and he had become a, a convert. He was a Greek. And, but Luke's work in Acts is the story and the call of the follower of Christ and of the church. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to jump into Acts chapter one is where we're going to start. Uh, chapter one, verse one, and we're going to go through eleven today if we can get there, um, and then we'll just kind of see where this leads us over the next few weeks, <laughs> years, decades, scores, whatever. All right, let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here today, and I thank you that you love us and that you have called us into relationship with you. And God, I thank you that the book of Acts is actually our book um, as a church. It's our book. It's who we're called to be, both in community and as individuals. Uh, Lord, if there's any sort of picture of what the church is called to look like and, and kind of exude, this is the picture. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convict us as we moved through it, both individually and as a community. Take a moment and pray in your own heart, in your own life. Just pray that God would teach you something this morning, that he will begin a work in you. Just pray, pray that. Pray that God would move in you. Take a moment and pray for someone around you, in front of you, behind you, beside you, even if you don't know their name. Just, as I say each week, be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray for someone else. Lord, we turn these moments over to you. We know that we don't discover truth. We can't read your word and find truth. God, you are the revealer of truth. And so, God, we pray that you would reveal through your Holy Spirit truth to our hearts as we examine your word, as we look at it. And, uh, Father, convict us where we need to be convicted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. God, we are completely yours. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, and our Lord. Amen. So... Let me say a word about the church first before we kind of dive into to verse 1. Because this story, although it's the call of follower of Christ, is really the call and the birth of the movement called the church. And I want to say a quick word about what the church was and what the church wasn't. So 
For all practical purposes, the birth of the church was not an organizational movement. It was an organic, grassroots kind of gathering. It was a um, very non-religious. It actually was somewhat anti-religious. It was, it was an anti or opposition to the Roman kind of setup of what was a, a approved religious practice, including things like emperor worship. It was sort of anti the Jewish system that had sort of taken God's law and turned it into a system of legal, legalistic kind of things. And, and they were, it was really this sort of kind of birth of these folks that gathered together out of necessity and out of the need to survive. So they got together in this sort of anti-religion, non-religious kind of way to celebrate the fact that they have all had this encounter with Jesus Christ and he has radically changed their life and there was no one else in the entire world that had this experience. We learn in Acts chapter 115, we'll see this next week, that there were 120 believers at that time, or roughly in that kind of neighborhood. That was it in the whole world. There were less believers than there are in this room right now that were gathered when the first church started meeting. And they didn't meet like this. They met in pockets of people out of necessity. And they shared meals and life and stuff. And they listened to the apostles' teaching. And it was a movement out of necessity and out of shared life. And as I think about that and I look at where our churches are today and these sort of Western consumer mega models, it's kind of a wonder how we got from there to here. And what we're going to see as we open this sort of book is this grassroots organic movement um, is sort of what we're called to be about. And it's not that the, the church and how it's grown in 2,000 years is inherently wrong. It's just there's a different picture in Scripture that I think should alter our DNA. So this is the picture of the church, right? It had yet to really kind of form into anything. It were just people gathered together out of necessity. And the book of Acts picks up right where Luke leaves off. Jesus had been crucified. He's been making resurrection appearances. And Acts picks up in the last of the resurrection appearances. In the end of those 40 days, as Jesus is appearing to people, Acts picks up and records the last spoken words of Christ in these first few verses. So let's take a look at it together. Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, and he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, he was eating with them, and he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very, taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they asked, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. So Acts picks up at the end of this 
these resurrection appearances, 40 days of Jesus showing up in, in different ways to different groups of people. And, and we read the ends of the Gospels and you'll see some of those appearances. We actually talked about one of them last week as we talked about Jesus showing up in the lives of the guys that were on the road to Emmaus, right? And how God, Jesus sort of shows up in these unexpected ways. Well, these are the resurrection appearances that were happening. And this is the last recorded one. And, and, and at, Luke starts this book off by saying, as I told you in my former work, Right, in this other volume, Theophilus. And we don't know much about this guy, Theophilus. We just know that his name in Greek means lover of God or friend of God. A lot of people would speculate on whether it was a single person or if Luke was writing to the church and they were giving him kind of name like lovers of God. doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the scope of what's happening. But he says Theophilus, right? He says, in my former book, I told you about all these things, about the life and the person of Jesus. And what I'm about to tell you now is a different story. It's a continuation. It's a, it's a continued movement of what we looked at. And he began to exp- by explaining these resurrection appearances that for 40 days Jesus had gathered. And there was one in particular, this last one, that I want to start with. And he says this. He says, listen, Jesus on this one time was eating with the disciples and he tells them not to leave Jerusalem, to stay right where they are. Because the promised Holy Spirit was coming, the one that he himself had been talking about that God had promised them, right? Tells them this gift is coming. And then the disciples, or those 120 that are gathered there, the apostles and those are gathered around, they said, is this the time that you're going to redeem Israel? Is this the moment where Israel gets reestablished as a political power? And Luke records Jesus as saying, hey, it is not for you to know the day or the time what the Father has set before you, Right? But you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth. And at that moment, as Jesus is saying that, we have what is called the ascension. Jesus literally taken up into the sky from their very eyes, hid by a cloud, which is representative of the very presence of God, hid by God's presence. And as they're all looking up, these angels of the Lord come basically right before them and say, why are you looking into the sky? You know, this is Jesus that has been taken from you. He will be back promising this return of Christ, which as followers of Christ, we believe that Jesus is coming back. And this is how this sort of movement begins. Now, there's a set of verses in here that are really important to us as a church. In fact, Acts 1, 4 through kind of 11 or 10 there are the verses that God used and gave us the vision when we first began to plant this little thing in in the first place. These these are very formative verses, and I'm going to tell you why. Because these verses really are all about one singular question, and that is, how do you see the world? And it was a question that was really posed to the disciples in Jesus' comments, and it's a question that's posed to me, and it's a question that's posed to all of us. How do we see the world? In verse 4, something kind of amazing happens. Jesus tells them about this incredible gift that's coming. He'd been telling about it for weeks, that the promised Holy Spirit was coming. He had even told the 12 disciples, I am leaving, but the Father will send the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, to you. Right? It will be a gift. It will be God's presence with you and in you. And Jesus says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. Don't scatter. Don't go back home to Galilee. Don't go back to what you were doing. Stay right here. Because this gift is coming to you. And the Holy Spirit is going to be on you. The same Holy Spirit that I have talked about. Gives them this incredible promise, which we're going to explore in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. And, but the disciples, those gathered there, they've got this narrow picture of the world. And they say this. They say, so is this the time, Jesus, that you're going to restore us, Israel, to a nation again, to a powerful nation? 
After all that they've seen and heard, after all that Jesus has taught them, proclaimed to them, showed them, demonstrated them with miracles, their questions were still wrapped around what they thought the Messiah was going to come and do. See, the Jewish people believed the Messiah was coming. And a lot of them believed that Jesus was that Messiah, but they believed that the Messiah would come and reestablish their nation. And they would overthrow the Roman rule, and they would be a great nation again, and they would have a king like David, and the Messiah would be that king. And that's what they longed for, because they wanted to be that political power again. They wanted to return to the glory that was kind of about Israel in the Old Testament, and they believed the Messiah was going to do just that. Even after Jesus had talked to them and told them and shared so much more with them, even after he told them about how he would have to die and be raised from the dead, even after 40 days of resurrection appearances, talking about the coming kingdom of God, their vision was still about themselves. Is this the time that you do this for us? Their picture of the world, their picture of God was so small. And you and I live and operate in that. Our church is operating that. We live in this segment that says, this is about me. God, is this the time that you're going to free me? That you're going to give me this? That you're going to bless me with that? That you're going to grow this to this? God, is this the time you're finally going to let me be free of this relationship or this financial burden or whatever? Is this what you're doing now? And even after God shows us kind of a moment after moment, faithfulness after faithfulness, forgiveness after forgiveness, our thought process is still so narrowly focused on us us, on me, on what I desire, that we miss God's massive movement and picture for the world and for people. And this is what's happening. The disciples, these 120 folks are gathered together and say, is this finally our time? And Jesus responds to them in this really powerful way. And he says, look, it's not for you to know the dates or the times the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, right? And you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the variants of the earth. And basically what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, listen, you're asking all the wrong questions. It's not for you to know the date or the time that the Father has set before you or even a thought, right? But you are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you are going to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the variants of the earth. Jesus basically looks at the disciples and he says, your picture of the world is so small. It's so narrowed. It's so focused on yourself and who you are. And as a church, we get that way all the time, right? Our focus becomes on ourselves, on our growth, on our maintenance, on what we need to do to do this and how we're going to do be this. And, and as followers of Christ, our, our thought process is often so narrow as well. God, what about me? When am I going to get this? Or when is this going to happen? Or when are you going to free me from this? Or Lord, take care of me? Or what job am I going to have? Or who am I going to marry? Or where are you leading me? Me, 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 me. What Jesus is saying is that your picture of the world and of God is so small. And this is what he says. He says, you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Meaning it's not going to be about you. It's not going to be about your power, not what you can do. You don't have that ability. God is going to empower you with the Holy Spirit. So you will be his, Right? And then you will be sent. You will be my witnesses. Now think about that idea of a witness, right? A witness is just someone who testifies about what they know. That's all it is. It's not like, you know, you go and tell a bunch of stories that you've never been a part of. If you're going to be a witness to Christ, all you do is talk about what you know. And the legal ramifications, those of you that, that may be attorneys or, or pre-law or whatever, like, you're a witness. You can only talk about what you know. 
to witness to Christ is not to go out and be a kind of an expert of all things. Jesus basically said, I'm going to empower you, and then you're going to tell people what you know about me, what you've experienced. It becomes the call of the follower of Christ, the call of the church. And Jesus says, you're going to do it in a really kind of interesting format. You're going to do it first here in Jerusalem, right? I heard an entire sermon one time preached on, on these four things, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And the, and the pastor explored this whole idea of Jerusalem as being what's comfortable, like, we've got to be able to share the gospel with those that we're comfortable with. And it has this whole picture of, of our families and of comfort and all that stuff. But the reality is, is that Jerusalem wasn't comfortable for these guys. They're all Galileans. They're not even from here. They are uneducated fishermen in the heart of powerful religious elitism. This was the last place they wanted to do. It's why wanted to be. It's why Jesus told them not to leave. Their natural reaction is going to be to go home. Their natural inclination was going to be to go find where it was safe. This was not safe. Huddled together behind locked doors, hoping the Pharisees didn't discover that you were one of those that were with Jesus, was not safe. But you know what it was? It was right there. And Jesus says, you are going to be my disciples right here, my witnesses right here, even when it's uncomfortable. You know, some of the most challenging conversations you will ever have about Christ are with people you love the most. Brothers, sisters, parents, co-workers. And I, for the life of me, can't figure out why it is. Because I'm that way too. I can tell a stranger a thousand times over in Guatemala or Bosnia or wherever we are about Jesus. But people in my own family, my father was alive, my own dad, couldn't bring myself to have the conversation. Jerusalem isn't always comfortable, but it's right here. It's right in the middle of that. And Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness right where you are. It's the call of the Christ follower. Wherever your life is, middle of med school, middle of uh, college, middle of your work environment, middle of your relationship, right where you are is your call to witness to what you know about Jesus, period. He goes on to say, it's also going to be in Judea. Judea was a region, all right? It was a whole area. It was about looking beyond where you are and realizing the world is bigger than your own system. There are people out there, even in our city, right outside of our neighborhoods, outside of our normal day kind of routine, people in our state, in our country, in a bigger picture than we have. And our focus so often is so narrow, right? Churches talk about marketing in terms of who we're targeting and what our demographic is, as if we're some kind of kind of business analytical model of targeting people. The reality is that there's a world beyond our own daily environments. And as a church, we have got to be about it. As followers of Christ, you have to look up every now and again and realize that there are people, people, real people with names and heartbeats that live in this city that don't cross your path that are in desperate need of Christ. Sometimes they're your neighbors. Sometimes they're people living in the corner or under the bridge. Sometimes they're one of the, one of the, one of, the one of five children in our great state that goes to bed hungry. The reality is there's a bigger picture than just what you see, and the church has got to be about seeing it. So he says, in Judea, and then he says, in the Samaria. And Samaria is fascinating to me because the Jewish people hated the Samaritans because they were a mixed breed of people, if you will. They were a mixed kind of descent of Jewish and Arab people, and they were occupying what was the, the northern kingdom of Israel. So when the Israelite kingdom was divided into two and then overthrown by the Assyrians, Samaria became a mixed area. The Jewish people decided to intermede or interbreed and have 
kind of uh, children with outsiders. And because they were of mixed blood or mixed descent, the true Jewish people that were living in Judea didn't want anything to do with them. In fact, we see some pretty fascinating things happening in Jesus' life um, where Jesus will traipse right through Samaria and other Jewish people won't go there. In fact, they would walk seven miles out of the way, 13 miles north, seven miles back, just to avoid walking or putting one foot in the soil that was Samaria. What do we see in John 4? Jesus goes right through it and he meets this woman at the well. Jesus went where most of the world wouldn't go. The religious, the, the sort of picture of, you know, cultural religious movement at the time wouldn't step foot in Samaria. Jesus went where people wouldn't go. Your call as a follower of Christ, define this however you will, is to go where people won't go. Touch people who the world won't touch. Speak to people who are marginalized and outcast. Fight for the oppressed. Like that's the call of the church as well. To be in places that the world won't reach or won't go, that people are throwaways. And the church steps in and says, this was where Jesus would be. The picture of Samaria is actually a sort of a picture of judgment. That's all it was. It wasn't that the people were bad per se, weren't any different than anybody else, but it was a picture of mental judgment. And so I'm not even going to go there. The Jewish people believed they were utterly and totally sinful and despised by God, so why waste our time? And Jesus looks at these folks and he says, you are going to be my witnesses in Samaria. And in order to witness in Samaria, you've got to go there. Most of us think that that just means we can sort of, in a conversational kind of way, use all the right phrases to love the marginalized, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, whatever. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Samaria, which means we've got to put feet in there. As a church, are we about, as a followers of Christ, are we about putting our feet in places physically and literally that other people won't go? And it's not just, hi, I, I, I want to show you God's love. Here's a sandwich. It's really developing a relationship with people and taking time to tell them about the God that has changed your life. And it's not easy, and it's not convenient, and it's messy, and sometimes it's painful. But Jesus says, you will be these things. It's your call. And then finally says, to, you will go be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. This is actually a literal thing, the very ends of the earth. A lot of times in our Western culture, we think of the ends of the earth means going over to the Middle East. Christianity was born over there. We are the ends of the earth. The whole idea is that we are called to go to our furthest reaches. And a lot of times our churches think this is some kind of strategy. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take care of every problem and every issue we have right here. And then once we do that, we're going to tackle our city, we're going to tackle our state, we're going to tackle the nation. And then once we get that done, we will go over there. It's not a strategy. It's a both and and all the above. It's the call of every single one of us. I love it when people tell me, hey, Trub, you know, I'm not really called to mission or evangelism or outreach or whatever your kind of catchphrase or word is there. That's not really my calling. And my response is always, you're right, it's not your calling, it's who you are. You do not have the luxury as a follower of Christ to decide that you are not called to these things. This is the call of every Christ follower, empowered and sent. It means as a church, we should be about all of these things. And if we can't go and stand there, we should be about sending people that will. Instead, our church has relegated mission to line items and money, and we push things and people so that we feel better about how we give. 
the reality is the church is a sent and empowered people. And that we have got to be living that way. Our greatest evangelism effort for most of us is to just try and invite someone into this place. If that's it, if that's our biggest goal, to invite a neighbor to come sit here, we are an abject failure. Your job as a follower of Christ is to walk into your neighbor's house and sit with them. I don't care if they ever come here. Go tell them about the God that has changed your life. At some point in time, speak love and truth to them. Don't bring them here so I will do it. You tell them about the God that has changed you. This becomes a call to Christ follower. And nobody wants to hear that. Because we want to walk into church and feel better about our lives. But the reality is, is that once Jesus has captured this thing, this heartbeat, it's no longer mine. It's his. We become literally slaves, servants to him. And as a church, this has got to be about what, who we are. And it's one of those things where if we truly read Scripture, we understand the book of Acts, we can't be a program-driven kind of organization that runs different things up our flagpoles and says, let's try this and see if people come. Let's try this and see if people come. Let's actually go out there and meet people and not worry about if they come. Let's just tell them about Jesus or tell them that we love them or put our feet in places that no one else will go without an expectation of return. Churches I've worked in, we have the same kind of conversations that we do in businesses. What's our return on investment? What's the best way to use dollars to get more people to come here so that we can get more dollars to go do things with more people? It's biblically bankrupt. At some point in time, this becomes an individual call of yours. And when we live it together, God uses it to change the world. The church was a grassroots organic movement of people looking to survive. Not to entertain each other. So part of this movement for us over the next 14 years, right? <laughs> Whatever we're doing here. We're going we're gonna to do a better job of telling stories. All right, so... We support and have in our little short history, we've supported and gone and done mission in all kinds of places. Not that we're perfect at it, but we just have tried. We've been in China and Africa and Guatemala and Peru and Nicaragua and Bosnia. And we've uh, soon to send Reagan to Thailand. And we've got folks from our kind of our crew missionaries that are over in Russia. We've got five at least crew, uh, Campus Crusade missionaries on the Norman campus, OU down there, that are here as part of our church that we support. We are desperately trying to live this out. And if we can't go there, we want to send people there. And we don't do a very good job of telling those stories. Most people don't know about the different engagements and people that we support. And so we're going to be doing a better job of telling those stories. So once a month, we're going to tell stories, right, of God's move, of people on mission. And it's not limited to just those that are organically kind of or vocationally doing quote-unquote mission work. But if you are being used by God, and God has you on mission, and something awesome is happening, I want you to tell me about it, and we're going to have you tell that story. We need to be better about telling the story of God's move. So part of this experience in Acts is going to be us actually standing up telling stories of God's move. And so you're going to be hearing some of those people. I'll be telling the stories. You'll be hearing from each other. Part of this challenge is saying, what if we audibly talked about the greatness and the difficulty and the struggle and the triumph of what's happening in and through our little community. This is what the early church did. They didn't gather together and just hear from one guy and sing a few things. They shared heart and song. And if somebody had a need, as we're going to learn, they sold something that took care of it. 
This becomes our call, and we need to do a better job telling those stories, celebrating those stories, praying over those stories, weeping over those stories. Some point in time, we're going to be kind of, as we grow, we're going to be infused with the enticement to live differently. My prayer is that as we go through this book, it will so change our DNA that when that temptation, that enticement comes to live into this Western mega consumer model, that it would so disrupt our core that it would almost make us sick, that we would just say, it's not for us. Maybe it's for somebody else, but for us, we get something different. And we're going to push on it all the time. We are empowered and sent people. It's your call and it's our call. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these moments to gather here. We thank you that you are a perfect God and that we are radically imperfect people. And Lord, the truth is, is that churches aren't bad. Man, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just, we're just made up of sinful people. And this is not a we're great and everybody else is not great. We're not great either. None of us are. And there are other models, and, 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 and I recognize that. But, Lord, I, I want to be tr- just true, authentically, organically true. We've got a lot of bumps and bruises along the way, and we know we're not very good at this. But, God, we want to follow you well. God, we want to be used by you to go to Jerusalem, to the uncomfortable places, to our own relationship with family and friends, to live as neighbors. God, we want to be used to, to have a bigger picture of what happens in the city, in the state, in this country. And God, we want to go to the places that no one else will go. We want to learn the names of people that nobody else cares about. And God, we want to go to the very ends of the earth, wherever that means, whether that's here or somewhere else. And we want to support and engage and love and send those who are called. So Lord, help us do this better. Help us follow you better and more authentically. And Lord, as you lead us and direct us, may we become captured by you to change our me-driven, small world, small God focus to a much bigger picture that says, God, we know that you're about redeeming the world and we want to be a part of wherever you are moving. God, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would hear the cry of our heart you would move us and move in us, drawing us into your presence.